0: Today we are going to be talking about new creations in Christ. Is Ishmael persecuting you? That will make a little bit more sense as we go along. But you see, we need to kind of look at the English in the Bible. Because sometimes when we translate the Bible, we don't get to see, I guess, as accurately the picture that's actually there in the original language. Because the Bible says that there are sinners and sinners. But there's a difference between the two. There's the word sinner, noun... And there's the word sinner, verb. How can you be a sheep and a goat? Can you be a saint and a sinner? Can you be a sheep and a goat? Or are you a sheep that sometimes acts like a goat? That's what we need to look at here today. What does the Scripture say? Are you a sheep, a goat, or both? Note that Paul is a saint. He's a sheep, is what the Scriptures say. Romans 7 says, If I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. So notice that if Paul does something wrong, it's not he who does it anymore. It's sin living in him that does it. Now, that's interesting. If you were going to have a play there, how many characters would you have to have? Two. You'd have to have Paul and sin. In Second Corinthians 5, 1-3, it says, We know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. Notice that Paul is saying that well, who we are. What I, when I look at you, I'm not seeing you. I'm seeing the tent you live in. The eye is kind of like the the, the window to the soul. You are the spirit of the soul that's inside this tent. Some of our tents are a little bit more worn than others. But the body is simply the tent that we live in. Another thing I want you to note is that we are in Christ already. John 15, verses 5 through 6. Let's see what is inside our tent. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me... And I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Notice that Christ is in you and you are in Christ. Now, I don't get that. I don't understand it. I don't feel that way. But I'm going to rain on my feelings and go with what the Bible says. The Bible says, Christ is in me. I don't understand. I don't get it. And he says, I am in him. That's incredible. If we are in Christ, are we in heaven with Him then? If He's sitting at the right hand of God, are we there? I don't feel like I'm sitting up there in heaven. But is that what the truth of Scripture says? Colossians 3, verses 1-5, through look at this. Since then you have been raised with Christ... Set your heart on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Notice that you are with Christ, you are seated with him in the heavenly realms, you're in Christ. Again, I don't feel that way. I don't get it, but that's what the Scriptures say. Christ is my life. My life is not my own. Christ can have no sin in Him, can He? No, Christ is perfect. So if Christ can't have sin in Him, then I can't be a goat and be in Him. I could be a sheep and be in Him, but I can't be a goat and be in Him. You, your spirit, your soul... Has been created new in Christ Jesus, and thou, you, your spirit, your soul, are in Christ. Your body? No. Your body is where sin resides. That is why who you are is a sheep that sometimes acts like a goat because of the tent that you live in. You are in Christ, not your body. Not yet. That's why you'll get a new body in heaven. Colossians 3, 1 through 5, again says, You died, for you died. You, when did you, how, how can you be sitting here if you died? This is that old nature. That old nature of Adam that you were born with. You see, you, there's the number one killer of people today. You know what the number one cause of death is today? Birth. Being born. You see, when you were born into this world, you were born with a death certificate, basically, to hell. And then when Christ came, you died. And there's a new creation, a new you, that is put inside that tent. Our old nature is gone. God didn't change you, He exchanged you. He didn't turn one into something different, He exchanged you. You died, and the new is now alive. Romans 6 tells us this in verse 6, For we know that our old self was crucified with Him, so that the body of sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves to sin, you died. Your old self, your old nature, that Adam crucified, killed, so that now a new person can live. We see in Ephesians 4:23 that we are to be made new in the attitude of your minds, to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. You're not a sinner, but a righteous and holy saint. There is a new creation that has taken place when you believed upon the Lord Jesus. That's amazing. You know, how can you be a saint? How can that be? You know, sometimes I get up and I look in the mirror and I'm thinking, that's no saint. I know me too well. Well, this is where Paul comes in very clearly. If I do what I do not want to do, it's not me that does it. It's not the saint that's doing it its sin living in me in my tent in my body Colossians 2:13 through 14 says how we are becoming saints or how we became saints he forgave us all our sins having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us notice that was past tense and that stood opposed to us he took it away nailing it to the cross <clears throat> how did you become a saint not by anything you did or what you're doing now you became a saint because of God's forgiveness and Him taking away your sins, nailing them to cross. Every sin that you do today was forgiven not today, but 2,000 years ago on that cross. We were born into a sinful world with a sinful nature, with this sinful flesh. Our birth certificate was our ticket to hell. And Christ paid that price and made you new because of faith in Him. Jesus' saint, when He made us a saint, it wasn't a performance-based thing. Judgment is not performance-based. Our report card is a pass or fail. It's not an A, B, C, D, how, how good did you do. It's do you believe in Jesus or do you not? Is He your Savior is He not? If He sees Jesus in you, you are a saint. If He doesn't, then you're a sinner. God defines a hypocrite as someone who pretends to be what they're not. Do you pretend to be a sinner, a noun, when God says you're a saint? Satan defines a hypocrite this way. Someone who acts contrary to the way they feel. Do you act on feelings and be blinded to the truth? Somebody who acts contrary to the way they feel. Okay, if you feel like you're a sinner, you're going to act like one. You don't act on feelings, you act on truth. You don't act on the way you feel about yourself. You've got to act on what God's Word says about who you are. Job 31, verse 6 says this, Let God weigh me in honest scales, and He will know that I am blameless. 2 Corinthians 8, 4, They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. Romans 15, 31, Pray that my service in Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints there. Do we ever see to the sinners in Ephesus? to the sinners in Rome, to the saints and sinners in Rome. No, it's always addressed to the saints, to the saints. But yet we have so many people out there saying, I'm a poor, miserable sinner. I'm not. I am not a poor, miserable sinner. I am a saint in Jesus Christ that sins at times. How could Job say he was blameless? You know, today we say, no, I'm blameless. People would say, oh, you're a pious person. But we have every right because of what Christ has done for us to say we are blameless, Not because of anything I've done or haven't done. It's because of what Christ has done to make us a saint. Mark Mark 3, verse 25 says, A house divided against itself, that house cannot stand. Remember, our body is a house. It's a tent that we live in. You can't be a saint and a sinner. A house divided against itself isn't going to stand. Your old self had to go. That's why it was crucified with Christ on the cross when you were born again. And this is why Jesus said, unless you are born again, you can't get into heaven. Unless you get rid of that old nature, you can't get into heaven. Now, by the way, there are two things that are going to send somebody to hell. Your old nature, being born, that will send you there. But then you can get rid of that old nature, but your sins would send you to hell. Your sins would send you there without forgiveness of Jesus Christ. You can't be a Siamese twin. You can't be you know, one good person and one bad person. You're either good or you're bad. Look at these verses. Ephesians 1.4 Christ chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. He didn't choose you to be a poor, miserable sinner. He chose you to be holy and blameless. Look at this one. We were therefore buried with Him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with Him like this in His death, we will certainly also be united with Him in His resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with Him, so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. We were therefore buried with Christ... When Christ was put in the grave, you were put in the grave. We were buried with Him how? Through baptism into death. Death. That's, you know, there's a lot of ideas of what happens out there in baptism. And frankly, I'm not sure I buy most of it. What happens in baptism, all I'm going to do is say what God says happens. And I know that through baptism, I was buried into death. Somehow, something of me was buried in baptism with Christ. I'm going to leave it at that. It's a command. I'm going to do it. Our old self was crucified. That's what counts. He made me a saint. Notice those verbs. We were in Him. We were in Him. We were in Him before creation. We were in Him there when He walked down that road to Calvary. We were in Him when He was hanging on that tree. And when He rose from the dead. It's like a page in a book. If you nail a book... To a tree? Okay? That goes through every page in that book. You might be just a page in that book, but the nail goes through you. We're a page in the book. You know what? This is so important to understand our identity in Christ, who we are in Christ, because you see, if you don't know who you are, We're just expensive paperweights unless you plug into the power. We can walk out there in life and we can do all kinds of good works, but what good is it unless we plug into the power source? Christ's life in us. That power source is what gives us our identity, who we are, our own individual personality. Christ in us. It's that power source. Otherwise, we're all the same. Expensive paperweights. You can take a jigsaw, You can take a bandsaw without them being plugged in, what good are they? None. Without you being plugged in to the Holy Spirit and His Word, what good are you? None. You know the footprints, this very famous poem, Footprints there. I don't mean to be nitpicky about theology and stuff. It's a great poem, but technically it's not theologically correct. You know the whole poem is basically where there's two footprints in the sand and then all of a sudden there's one. And when there's one, it's when God was carrying us through those hard times, they say. Well, Habakkuk 1.11 says, Guilty men are those whose own strength is their God. God doesn't help us out at times. He is our life. Our entire life. It's constantly one set of footprints. At least that's the way we should view it. That's the way we should live it. Because God is all in all. He doesn't help us with these problems. He is our life. So what do we focus on, death or life? Where do we put our focus? Romans 5.10 says this, For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through His life? Now wait a minute. Look at that. When we were God's enemies, it says that we were reconciled to Him through the death of Jesus? That means you were saved. Now, wait a minute. How much more than having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? Saved from what? We're already saved. So what are we being saved from? Do you focus on the death of Christ only or do we focus on the life of Christ? Because through his life, how much more are we saved? Man, I want to know what I'm saved from. I'll tell you what we're saved from. We are saved from hell on earth. Jesus is not the focal point of our life. He is our life. Colossians 3.4 says, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. It's the life of Christ that gives us the freedom, the joy, the ability to obey, just a wonderful aspect of Christianity, the joy of our salvation. It's the death of Christ that brought you into salvation. And there's so many people in the churches today that because of the death of Christ have been saved, but they're sitting in churches going, this is not fun. They have no joy in life because they're focusing just simply on the death of Christ, not the life of Christ, who saves us even from so much more. I call this the Latter-day Saints. This is the way I used to view Christianity. I used to think, you know, you've got two choices. Change your actions. In order to have your heart changed or change your heart in order to have your actions changed. I used to think, you know, when, if I can stop my swearing, then I'm going to become a good Christian. Or if I can stop watching these bad things on television, then I'm going to become a, bad, a better Christian or a good Christian. It doesn't work that way. You go to Christ and then those things begin to fall away. It's the relationship with Christ comes first. Romans 8 and 9 says, You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. It's the Spirit of God that controls your life. Granted, yes, you make choices to obey. You make choices to turn that TV off. And when you make those choices, God blesses that. There's no question. But the relationship of Christ has to be what drives you to make that choice. There's these little green highways. If you take a little road, you can kind of see here on this road how the the weeds are beginning to grow up on that. If you keep traveling along that road, the weeds don't get up there, do they? It's a well-traveled road. And this is the way our brain works. You see, we've got these brain patterns. And every time we have these brain thoughts, uh, if I have a lustful thought and I lust after women, every time I see a pretty woman, I'm going to lust after her. And there's that brain pattern that's just being traveled on a lot. And so it's a very well-traveled road, not very many bumps, and it's very easy to travel on that road. But if you don't travel on that road very much, all of a sudden the weeds begin to grow up, and it's harder to travel on. And this is why I think Scripture is very important uh, when it talks about capturing our thoughts. Let's examine this a little bit. Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you, says James chapter four, verse seven. Or for Second Corinthians ten five, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it to the obedience of Christ. You see, the more we resist these temptations, the more that this path is going to have weeds grow up on it. If you have your, your um, uh, let's say, algebra. You used to be very good in algebra. You haven't done algebra in many years. You go try it again, and you forgot how it works because you haven't traveled on that road for a while. When you begin capturing your thoughts and taking them to the obedience of Jesus Christ, and you don't lust after you see that woman and you think, oh, she's pretty, but I'm not going to look at that. I'm not going to allow that. I'm going to take that thought captive to the obedience of Christ. I'm not going to run with it. Pretty soon you find yourself not even noticing those pretty girls because that road has weeds starting to grow up on it. 1 Timothy 4, verses 8 through 10 says this, Physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. And for this we labor and strive that we have put our hope in the living God who is the Savior of all men. You see, this isn't going to come naturally, people. This takes practice. He says to practice this thing. Physical training has some value, but there's another training that is very important. And for this, he says, we labor and strive. It's going to take work. It's going to take a consciousness. It's going to take practice to say, I'm going to capture that thought. I'm not going to run with that. God wants more than our salvation. He doesn't just want you to be saved. He wants you to be happy. He wants us to reap the blessings that He has to offer us on this side of heaven as well as that side of heaven. But the way that we reap those benefits is by walking with Him and obeying Him. That's how you're going to find joy in life. You are and act as who you think you are. If you think you're a saint you are going to behave as a saint. If you think that you are a sinner, you're going to say, well, I'm just a sinner anyway. And you behave as a sinner does. You need to practice truth. Chase after truth and rain on those feelings. Now, does the law motivate you to do good? No. Thou shalt not steal doesn't make you not want to steal. What makes you not want to steal is because you love Jesus and you don't want to to do anything that He doesn't want you to do. The law never motivates us. And that's why the gospel is the center for a Christian. The gospel is not for an unbeliever. But once you become a believer, then the gospel is there. 2 Corinthians 5.14 says, For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. It's Christ's love that compels us to do good, to make those choices, to capture our thoughts. We also see in 2 Corinthians 3 6, Paul shows us that the law kills. It doesn't give us life. He says, He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Once you become a Christian, that law, it needs to be thrown away. It doesn't rule your life anymore. Likewise, if we think that you're a sinner, And that you need to change, you're not going to be motivated or or have your strength to become better either. Thinking you're a sinner doesn't give you the the need to change. A relationship with Jesus does. That's what counts. John 15, verses 5 through 6, we have here the, the vine and the branches. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You see, branches don't produce fruit, do they? No. By themselves, they cannot produce fruit. Okay? The fruit they do, they bear. They don't produce it, they bear it. It's the fruit that the vine produces. Likewise, you can't produce good fruit. It's the vine, Jesus Christ, that is going to bear or produce that fruit that you will bear. You can do nothing apart from Christ Jesus. You know, some people say that the law is anything that you do. Gospel is anything that Jesus does. That's wrong, in a sense. Obedience can be gospel. It doesn't have to be law. Because is the obedience coming from the vine, or is it coming from the branch? My fruit isn't coming from me, it's coming from the vine. I can do all things through Christ. Okay? All things through Christ. If I help an old lady across the street... Because of motivation by law, that can be law. But if I help an old lady across the street because of my love for Jesus, then it becomes gospel. Jesus is the one that did it. So obedience can be gospel. First Timothy 1.9 says, We also know that the law is made not for the righteous. Are you a righteous saint, as the Scripture clearly says? Well, then the law is not for you. It wasn't made for you. It says it was made for the lawbreakers, the rebels, the ungodly, the sinful, the unholy, and the irreligious. So the law wasn't made for you. It was before you became you. We see in 1 Corinthians 9, 20, following, To the Jews I became like a Jew, to win the Jews. To those under the law I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law. Paul says he's not under the law. Now you go out and tell people that today, I'm not under the law. They'll say, what? Oh, you heathen. Paul said it. I'm not under the law. So as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. Though I am not free from God's law, but I am under Christ's law. You see, now it's not the law of the Ten Commandments we're under, we're now under Christ's law. Christ's law is the law of love. And if we love Christ, will will you obey those Ten Commandments? You bet you will. We're not under it, but we still follow it. Romans 7.6, But now by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in a new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. We don't serve in the old way of the Ten Commandments. We serve in the new way of the Spirit, obeying those Ten Commandments. Romans 6.14, For sin shall not be your master because you are not under law, but under grace. Galatians 5.18, If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. Are you a Spirit-led Christian? Then you're not under the law. Galatians 3.12, The law is not based on faith, On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. If you live under the law, you're going to live by the law. And you know what? It stinks. You're not going to do very well living under the law. You'll fail. Romans 8, 2-3. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do it, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. God took care of it for you. Like I said, we are not running on performance-based Christianity here. It's not until we stray from Christ that we need that law. When you stray from Christ, that's when the law comes in to bring you to repentance. You know, every time I used to sin, I think, Oh, this is the third time I've done this. God, how can you forgive me? This is the third time. Or I might say, Man, this is too big of a sin, God. I, I did these awful things. There's no way you can forgive me. This is too big of a sin. Or some people think, well, God, this is the fifth time I've done it. Until I change, I know you're not going to forgive me. I need to change before this becomes effective. Okay? That's like saying, hey, God, I need to help you out in your forgiveness. What you did wasn't good enough. I need to do something to make it effective. Right? We doubt. Rain on your feelings. What does the Scripture say? Others say, well, God, thanks for, for dying, but you know I need to be a better person first. Thanks, God. Thanks, but. This is the way I used to live my life in that Latter-day Saint type thing. I used to do that. And as a result, I never experienced the true joy of my Christianity, the joy of my salvation, because what ended up happening was this. I was like, well, thanks, God, for saving me. I really appreciate that. But I'm still an awful person. I didn't see to what extent the vileness of who I was, how God had forgiven me. Jesus says, the man who has been forgiven much loves much, but he who loves little or who has been forgiven little will love little. I kept thinking I had been forgiven little because I was so bad. When I began to realize that I had been forgiven of everything, then all of a sudden I began to realize the extent of God's love for me. Truth is truth regardless of how you feel about something. Out on the street, people say, I don't believe in God. Well, it doesn't matter. I'll say, hey, you know, if I stick a gun to your head and you say I don't believe in bullets, does it matter? No. What you believe, the way you feel, doesn't count. doesn't count. Truth is truth regardless of your feelings. So, if the Scriptures are saying you're a saint and you don't feel like it, does it really matter? No. You say, well, if I act bad, I must be a sinner. If I act good, I'm a saint. That's not what the Bible says. John 1.17 says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. We even read in 2 Peter 2, seven, He rescued Lot, a righteous man. You know, when I look at Lot, I don't see a righteous man. And I'm thankful for that, but that's the truth. That's the truth. Lot was a righteous man, even though he went and got drunk and he did all those bad things. He was a righteous man. I wonder if he felt like it. Do you feel like it? Do you sometimes do bad things? What's the truth say of Scripture? He says that you are a righteous, blameless saint. Now keep in mind, this whole presentation, this is for Christians who are born again. If you are not a born again Christian, this presentation is not for you. You need to go back to the evangelism video. This is only for believers, this message. This wonderful, freeing truth is only for the godly believer. You know, in communion, why is there bread and wine? Why both? Have you ever wondered that? It's very simple, because it's the blood of Christ that brought the forgiveness. But what did the body do? If we always focus on the, on the blood of Jesus, what about the body? What did the body of Jesus do? We died to the law. Through the body of Christ, is what Romans says. Look at this, chapter 7, verse 4 and 5. So, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body. How many of you want to be under the law today? Not me. It was through the body of Christ that you were freed from that. You were forgiven through His blood, but now you have been even more so freed by His body. So that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. Notice, you can be forgiven, but without recognizing the body, it seems to suggest you won't be very fruitful. We have died to the law. Why? So that you can bear fruit. As long as you're under the law, you won't be able to bear fruit until Jesus, the vine, begins to bear the fruit for you or produce the fruit that you bear. We read in Hebrews 10.10, We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Christ Jesus. It's through the body of Christ that we have been made holy. His body exchanged our identity from a sinner to a saint. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Isn't it wonderful to know that we aren't living, it's Jesus living in me? That He has given us this new identity? We read in Mark, chapter 14, verse 58, we we heard him say, I will destroy this man-made temple and in three days we'll build another, not made by man. We see that Jesus was talking about his body and after three days, God raised that temple, his body. You know what's also interesting? We are in Christ, so we are that new most holy place. You know the Bible says that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit. The word used there, temple, is the most holy place. We now are that temple. We are being made into the temple, as Peter also tells us. So therefore, we're new. God made our bodies. Not our bodies. Let me rephrase that. Our spirits. It's not the tent that's the temple. It's the spirit of man. In the Old Testament, if a sinner went behind that most holy place, that veil, they'd have perished. If somebody had murdered somebody and they went in and did a sacrifice and the high priest said, The Lord has forgiven you. And they said, oh, I'm so happy. And they ran in there and they grabbed onto the altar because they were so thankful that God had forgiven them. What would have happened? They grabbed that Ark of the Covenant. God would have killed them. They were dead. But Jesus, when he died, that curtain was ripped so that we had now access into that most holy place. Now we can say, oh, thank you, Jesus. And we run into the throne room of God and we can grab onto that Ark of the Covenant and say, oh, thank you. We've been given access. Could sinners enter the most holy place, the throne room of God? No. Hebrews 10, 19-20 says, We have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is His body. What was the curtain? His body. What gave us access into the most holy place? the most intimate place, you were already in the temple, you were already saved. If you saw the tabernacle presentation, you'll see what I'm talking about there. You're already saved. It's the body of Christ that brings us in there. God cannot live in sin. If you are a sinner now, God can't live in you. 2 Corinthians says, For we are the temple. The most holy place of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. The sin that we have is in our body. And I know some of this seems to be a little repetitive, but you know, this is such a deep concept. This is the meat of Scripture. Scripture. You know the script, we think that the meat is baptism and communion and repentance and stuff. That's not. You read Hebrews and it says that we need to leave the elementary truths, the milky doctrines. And he tells us what they are. He says the teachings of baptisms, repentance, laying on of hands, and move on to the meat, the teachings of righteousness. This is as meaty as it gets, guys. We're talking, this is filet mignon here. Sin resides in the body. 1 Corinthians 15, 51. When Christ returns, we don't get a new soul and a new spirit, do we? Why? Because there's nothing to fix. What we get is a new body because that's where sin lives. Schofield said this, Repentance is not an act separate from faith, but saving faith implies the change of a mind which is called repentance. Repentance is a mandatory thing for regeneration. That's why John the Baptist came before Jesus. Elijah is going to come before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Repentance is a forerunner. John 12 says, The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Repentance is that forerunner of faith. Matthew 3.2, Jesus said, Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. Matthew 4.17, From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. 2 Corinthians 7.10 Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Repentance that leads to salvation leaves no regret. But simply worldly sorrow? There are people out there who do things wrong, they get caught, and they're sorry because they got caught. That doesn't matter. That leads to death. True repentance is a turning away from those things. Acts 3.19 says, Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. The times of refreshing may come from the Lord. You want to know step number one to joy in the Christian life? It says, Repent. Turn to God. When repentance comes into your life, your sins are wiped out. And then when you realize that, that's the first step. You need to swallow your pride first. Abandon your life and cling to Jesus as life. When you get rid of your selfishness and you've put your focus on Christ rather than you, your body typically, that's when things are going to change. That's when joy is going to come about. But we spend so much time trying to feed the body, not the spirit. You're hungry, you feed it. You're thirsty, you, you give it something to drink. You, you're uncomfortable, you move. We're so worried about the flesh, not the spirit. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1-4, through four, he says, "...since then you have been raised with Christ... Set your heart on things above. Christ, Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died. Hear what he's saying? Set your mind not on your body, but on Christ. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. Luke 9, 24. You focus on your life, you're going to lose it. You focus on your true life, you're going to gain it. You see, if there was no law, why not sin, people say. We got to get rid of, if there's no law, then I can do anything I want. Well, there's still the law of Christ, the law of love. But let's look at Romans 6.15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? May it never be. Why? Thanks be to God that though you were slaves to sin... You became obedient, not from the law, but from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves to righteousness. Note, slaves are controlled by their masters. You are a slave to righteousness. That's what counts. So what's your answer? Galatians 3.2 says, I would like you to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? What's your answer? Did you receive the Spirit by the law or by belief, faith? There's only one right answer. Do you try to add to faith by good works through the law? Do you try to add your faith and become a better Christian by adding, by following the law? It doesn't work that way. Galatians 3.3 says, Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Sin is a power. It's a noun. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, 1 Corinthians 15, 56. Sin is a noun. It's a power. Let's examine sin a little bit. Meaning of anything's tied up in its origin. Let's go back to where sin is first really beginning, and we see here in Genesis 4, 7, it says, If you do what is right will you not be accepted but if you do not do what is right sin is crouching at your door and it literally translated it means he is desires to have you but you must master him now when Cain is about to kill Abel this is what God told him sin noun is crouching at your door and he desires to have you sin is personified here that's very important Because one of Satan's biggest secrets is he gave Cain those thoughts and he wanted Cain to think that those were his thoughts. He's going to give you thoughts that are bad and he's going to want you to think they're your thoughts when they're not. You see, God lives in your spirit, according to 1 Corinthians 6.17. Sin lives in your body, according to Romans 7, verse 23. We have sin noun or sin verb. I am a saint that sins, verb. Another thing I want you to understand is that you don't have a sinful nature. Did you know that that word doesn't appear in the Bible? The word is actually sinful flesh. Only the NIV translates it sinful nature. So to say that, oh, you know, we've got a sinful nature, that's why I do things, that's, that's bad. Okay, that's, a, a pig's nature is to, to wallow around in the mud, isn't it? They can't help themselves. So to say that you have a sinful nature means you can't help yourself. That's garbage. You can help yourself. To blame sin on the old man promotes denial and it suggests that it's normal to act the way you do. No. Our old nature was crucified with Christ Jesus, Romans 6. So Satan can't raise him up again. So don't, I don't want to ever hear you say that you know, the devil made me do it or that my sin, you know, it's my sinful nature. Uh-uh. It's not. That's been exchanged. No sinful nature. Now, maybe some of that offends some of you. Maybe you think, man, this guy's way off. I challenge you, go to Scripture. Find those verses that say that I'm a sinner. We see in 2 Peter 1.4, Through these He has given us His very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. You see, you have escaped your sinful nature, and now you have put on Christ, and you have a divine nature. Isn't that something to give thanks about? Paul longs to do good in the Scriptures. He hates sin. That's why he says, if I do what I do not want to do. One of the signs of Christianity is that when you do do bad, as a sheep, you act like a goat. Do you want to? Do you want to act like a goat? Of course not. So if you don't want to act like a goat, it's not you. It's sin living in you. Only the NIV in 23 of the 151 occurrences use this sinful flesh. Translates it as sinful nature. You don't have it anymore. You have a divine nature. Okay, look at this again. Romans 7, 17. When Paul said this, As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. If this was a play, like I said, you would need two characters to do this. You need somebody playing sin, and you need somebody playing Paul. Satan wants you to think that these sins that you do are your idea. Sin is crouching at the door, and he desires to have you. He wants you to feel that you messed up. Therefore, he can get you to feel guilty. And therefore, he can get you to not to accept the forgiveness that Christ gave to you free of charge. He wants to make you feel like you've got to be better before that grace kicks in. In Romans 5-8, through 8, sin, the word sin, appears 41 times. Only one time does it appear as a verb. In verse 14 of chapter 6. Only once. Here it is. For sin, noun, shall not be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin, verb, because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Sin, is a noun. Sin, that power, that noun, is deceiving you. That character, that person, is deceiving you and making you think that your thoughts are yours, when they're really not your thoughts at all. Only when you act upon those thoughts do you become accountable to that and are they your thoughts. James 1 says this in verses 14 through 15, When each one is tempted, By his own evil desire, flesh, he is dragged away and enticed. By what? By the power of sin. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Notice that sin, noun, that entity, that is what puts those thoughts in your head. It offers the thoughts to you, to your flesh, to your desires and then He gives them to you to consider. When you take them, that's when it becomes you. Okay. Then it gives birth to sin. So if you're walking down in the the grocery store and you see a pretty woman, and you think, whoa, she's pretty. Sin has now offered you a thought. And you can take that thought to the obedience of Christ, or you can take that thought to the obedience of the flesh. And you can say, I'm not going there, and now you've done the right thing. Or you can say, oh, and I'm going to go down that aisle. I don't really need anything down that aisle, but I'm going to go down that aisle. And so you follow the woman down the aisle. Now it has become your thought. Now you have taken ownership of it, and it's become yours. That's when it gives birth to sin, which sin then gives birth to death. Romans 7, verse 23 through 24 says, I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner to the law of sin at work within my members. Now let's look at this. The enemy, the law or the power of sin, that's what the enemy is. Okay, Its dwelling is the body, not the mind. Let's look at that again. I see another law at work, waging war against the law of my mind. Why is my body waging war against my mind? Interesting. Your mind is, is at war with the body? Well, let's see why. Romans 7:23 through 24 is what we just quoted. Your mind wants to obey, so sin in your body wars against it. Because your spirit is not your body. Hebrews 10:16: I will put my law in their hearts and i will write them on their minds where did god put the law now in our minds in our hearts we want to do good 1 corinthians 2:16 says we have the mind of christ your mind is where christ is at we worship in spirit and truth in the mind in the spirit but where does sin live in the body so sin in the body is waging war against your mind because we've kind of got a bad roommate that we have to live with in this, this tent, this body. It's not a good guy versus a bad guy. It's a good you versus the power of sin that's in your body. How do we apply this to our life? 2 Corinthians 10, 5 through 6 says, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to the obedience of Christ. That is key, is taking our thoughts captive. And as I said, this is going to take practice. It's going to take training. When you go through that grocery store, when you put on your lipstick, when you're driving that car, you need to put God in your mind. You need to be thinking about Him, taking those thoughts captive. When you have a thought, when Satan, sin, puts that thought of bitterness towards somebody in your mind, you thought, oh... You know what? I know that that's not my thought. I know that's the power of sin in me. And that's not a godly thought. I'm not going to run with that. You practice that thing. Romans 6.14, sin, noun, shall not be your master. Don't let that power of sin that's giving you these thoughts, offering them to you throughout your entire day, be your master. Sin can't control you because you have the mind of Christ. Don't let him get away with that. Training is hard. But Hebrews 5.14 says this, Solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Philippians 4.9, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice. Satan is the accuser who is accusing you of your thoughts. But by practicing, by training to think and act like he is working through us, God, God, then the power of sin is subdued. It's that whole green highway thing again. The more you practice this, the more you begin capturing your thoughts, the more you put Christ in your mind, the more Satan has to work to get that stuff, those bad thoughts, into your head. So I want to put out another word of warning here. Don't be looking for Satan's evil. Don't set your mind on Satan and the sin in you and saying, okay, I got that one, Satan. Uh-huh. No. Put, set your mind on things above. Put Christ in your mind. And the more you think, talk, and, and, and visit, and, and do whatever you can in putting Christ in your life throughout your daily life, what's going to happen is this. Satan is going to try and get that thought of that beautiful woman in there, or that thought of desire of some sort in there, but you're thinking on God, and so he can't get it in there because it's got to get through all those other things. And the less you think about those, the more the weeds grow up on that highway of the brain and you just can't do it. And pretty soon, a year goes by and you think, you know, I haven't been thinking about women lustfully very much anymore. What's going on? Well, Christ is renewing you. So step one is set your mind on things above. Because sin then is going to be faced with the challenge of getting through those godly thoughts to deliver His thoughts to you. They're going to stick out like a sore thumb when they do too. Step 2, recognize it. You take those thoughts captive, you recognize it. Step 3, capture it to the obedience of Christ. When you capture and recognize that thought, in its place you put God there. You put Christ there. To say you have a sinful nature gives you an excuse to sin. So that's the other thing. Stop get that out of your vocabulary. Like I said, it's a pig's nature to wallow in the mud. It's not your nature to sin. You have the divine nature now, and it's not your nature to sin. So start thinking that way. Start verbalizing that. Even though you don't feel that way, verbalize it. Romans 6, 11-14 says, In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to Him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master because you are not under law, but under grace. Offer your body to Christ. Put it into submission every now and then. Fast. Offer it to Christ. Serve. Offer the instruments of your body to Him. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body because that's not the one. Offer yourself to God instead. That's the other step. True knowledge is the outgrowth of obedience. All else is only information. You need to put it into practice. I can tell you this and you say, hey, you know, that was really good, that was interesting, I've never thought of that before, and go home and forget about it and not start practicing this, and whoop de doo nothing's going to happen. True knowledge is the outgrowth of obedience. Do what I'm telling you to do. Do what Scripture tells you to do. And you're going to become uh, a whole new person. You're going to see Christ and you're going to gain joy in life. It's the most freeing thing. You see, Jesus' ministry, I used to think was this great gospel thing. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, those are the gospels, right? Wrong! When does the true gospel begin? The New Testament begin? The New Testament begins when Jesus shed His blood. That's the New Covenant. Jesus' ministry was under the law. You need to remember that these chapter verses and things like that, those weren't inspired. Man put those in there. Matthew 4, 17, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Not here. When Jesus was at that Mount of Transfigura- or, uh, the Mount of Transfiguration, when He was on the Mount of Beatitudes, He wasn't giving them gospel sermons. He was giving them sermons under the law. Go back and read those Beatitudes. I don't know how many gospel sermons I've heard from that, but it's the law. Let's look at some of these things. The biblical illustration. Matthew 6, verses 14 through 15 says, For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. This is part of the Beatitudes. How gospel does that sound to you? If you forgive, then God will forgive you. Well, I'll tell you what, each and every one of you better go home and decide if you've really been able to forgive everybody that's really been mean and and that's hated you. Because if you haven't forgiven them, God's not going to forgive you. That's not the gospel I know. But you see, that was before the New Testament begins at His blood. Let's read Colossians after Jesus died and resurrected. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Does it say you have to do something first? No. He says, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us, that stood opposed to us, He took it away, nailing it to the cross, past tense. You see, when you sin, you're not surprising God. You don't need to go home and say, Oh God, I'm so sorry, I let you down. God knew you were going to do that even before He created the world. You can't surprise God. He forgave you of what you're going to do tomorrow 2,000 years ago. Let's look at some other ones before the cross. Matthew 5 in the Beatitude, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. What if you don't hunger and thirst for righteousness? What if you're just content to be a Christian you just watch TV all the time? Well, after the cross, God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Now you become the righteousness of God by faith, not by hungering and thirsting for it. How about here? Matthew 5, 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Boy, I hope you've got enough mercy, because otherwise you're not going to have much. Sounds like a great gospel sermon to me. Not. After the cross, 1 Peter 1, 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now we receive mercy simply by faith after the cross. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. What if you're not a peacemaker? But after the cross, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Through faith, you're a son of God. Can you see the difference Jesus' ministry was one that was given under the law, but the church keeps raising these things up as gospel. It's the law. The Beatitudes weren't for us. They were for those that were under the law. Matthew 5, let's look at this here again, verses 20 through 22. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Well, I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Rock, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, You fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Note the present tense form of those verbs. Soon Jesus was going to throw them out of life raft. When those people went home, I don't think they went home thinking, Oh, man, that was wonderful. I think they went home thinking, Man, we're doomed to hell. I'm not a peacemaker. He'll say, unless your righteousness doesn't surpass that of the Pharisees, that'd be like me saying to you, hey, if you're not better than James Dobson or Billy Graham or whatever leader you can come up with, you can't get to heaven. That's what Jesus said there. He said, you think, you know, it's been said that if you commit murder, you can't get to heaven. And they're like, good, I haven't committed murder. And then he says, I tell you, though, if you've hated somebody, you've committed murder. You're like, oh, my goodness. He sent them to hell. He was preparing them so that when He would die and rise, He could give them that lifeboat. And they would be so thirsty for it that they'd be ready to jump in. That life raft we see in 1 Corinthians 30, It is because of Him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Or Matthew 5.25-26. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Jesus wasn't talking there in the Beatitudes about the civil court and go and settle matters quickly. He was talking about the Father, the true judge. Settle those matters quickly, because if you don't, he's going to throw you until the last penny has been paid. Every sin has been paid for. Throw you into hell. You better deal with that now because a day is coming when that judge is returning. Matthew 5.48, even in this beatitude, said, Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. How many of you could go home and say, Oh, I've been perfect like my heavenly Father is. No, that would send you to hell. God provided this for them before the cross. And then on the cross, He took those sins away for us. Colossians 1.28, We proclaim Him admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. Now I am perfect, as my Heavenly Father is perfect. And that might sound like I'm some pious person, but it's not on my own strength. It's because of Jesus Christ that He has made me perfect. I am holy. I am blameless. And if you don't like it, take it up with God, because that's what God's Word says. And I don't feel that way, but I claim it, because that's what truth says. You see, the law isn't bad. It's just not for us. 1 Timothy 1, 8-9 says, We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers. Romans 13, 8. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commands, commandments do not commit murder or adultery, do not steal, do not or covet. Whatever other commandment there may be are all summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Love is the new commandment that we are under. And if we love God, all the rest fall right into place. Jesus says that there are two main laws. Love the Lord with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. And then He said all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So, basically, if you love the Lord... The Ten Commandments are in your heart already, aren't they? That's why you're not under the law. We need to carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will f- fulfill the law of Christ, Galatians 6.2. That's the law that we are under. Again, I want to caution you that we don't use cheap grace. Because sometimes we can use cheap grace and say, oh, you know, I don't need to do anything then. I'm a saint, and so I can continue watching that filth. Then I'm going to caution you that maybe the law hasn't done its work in your life yet. Because if you are a Christian where the law has done its work in your life, you don't want to watch that filth on TV. Maybe you still do, but you don't want to. Your wants will change as a new creation in Christ. And if your wants have not changed, then perhaps, perhaps you have not had the law do what the law is supposed to do in your life. But if you have, then I want you to rain on your feelings and I want you to stand on the truth of God firmly because He has made you a new creation in Christ. Now, I said I was going to explain what Ishmael had to do with this. Go back and read Galatians. And Galatians tells us very clearly that Mount Sinai represents Hagar. Jerusalem was represented by Sarah. What came from Mount Sinai? The Ten Commandments. That represents Ishmael. What came from Sarah knew the New Jerusalem? Jesus, which Isaac was a type of. Sarah gave Isaac, the child child that came from the promise. And he's going to go through, he's going to say that this is the children of the promise and the children born in the natural way. The children of the promise are Isaac, Christians. The children born in the natural way, non-Christians. The people who are not new creations in Christ. And as it goes on, it will say that Isaac was persecuted by Ishmael. And even to this day, when the law is read, Ishmael persecutes Isaac. Let me ask you, is Ishmael still persecuting you today? Is, that, is he stare, standing there on your shoulder all the time persecuting you? Saying, ah, oh, you're not good enough. You're not a saint. Look at what you've done. This is the third time you've done that you know what, that's exactly what Satan tried to do before God. He was the accuser of men. He would stand up there before God and say, look at Brian, look what he's doing. Can you see what he's doing, God? Look, look. And he says, he's a Christian. (laughs) Come on, God. You know what God says to Satan? He says, yeah, that's my Saint Brian. And you know what? Sometimes he acts that way. But I love him. You need to get Satan and Ishmael off your back. And believe what Jesus Christ has done for you. And when you accept that, you're going to begin feeling so free, so forgiven, that you can't help but love God so much more. This wonderful truth of Scripture freed me in so many ways, and I pray that it will do that for you as well. I pray that in the name of Yeshua. Thank you.